Hey everybody, I know you're excited to get to Jamie Lee and we're excited for you. This episode in particular is sponsored by Nightstream, a one-of-a-kind virtual festival event set for October 7th through the 13th, bringing some of the year's most buzzed-about genre films, unique filmmaker talks, digital parties, special events, and more straight to your screens at home. All this is available on your Roku, Apple TV, or web browser. Nightstream proceeds benefits the filmmakers involved as well as the National Alliance to End Homelessness and the Sunrise Movement. To get your tickets and badges and to find out more information, head to nightstream.org and follow them on social media at NightstreamFest. And we have the Fango ad read. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content. Content? That's not a word. Content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. We have an especially exciting guest joining us this week to dive deep into the great coming-of-age tale, Stand By Me, directed by Rob Reiner and based on the equally amazing Stephen King novella, The Body, from different seasons. Our guest is an actress, producer, and director who has been in some of your favorite movies like A Fish Called Wanda, Trading Places, True Lies, Knives Out, Road Games, one of my personal favorites, John Carpenter's The Fog, and of course, she set the example that all final girls have been trying to live up to since 1978 as Laurie Strode in Halloween, and she can next be seen in this October's Halloween Kills. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jamie Lee Curtis to the KingCast stage. Welcome, Jamie. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. hi, everybody. Um, so hi. the question I was going to ask you as your yes. king experts, you yes, yes. didn't you did in your intro, um, which was simply what was the original title of Ooh. the piece that bred Stand By Me? That is which true. Was, yes, the as body. you said, the body, which yeah, yeah. I remember I am a what you don't know about me is I'm a marketing whiz. If you mm. literally just look at my career, you'll go, damn, that girl can market. I am a marketer <laughs> and I love good marketing. I love it. I am yeah. also a title queen. So mm. like people, people will call me with something and I'll say, well, let me think of a better title. Um, I thought they made a huge error going from the title, The Body, mm. which to me was the great title. <laughs> <laughs> of right. all times. Like when I heard they were going to rename the body stand by me, mm-hmm. I thought that was so lame. <laughs> <laughs> right. I thought it was a ridiculous title. Um, when you had the origin story called the body. 
Right. Um, I've obviously been proven wrong as the, you know, Stand By Me was very successful. And of course, it connected to the song and I get it. It's very common. Um, yep. For instance, by the way, for instance, the movie My Girl mm-hmm. was originally called Born Jaundiced. What? <laughs> okay. And then there was also a title called, <laughs> it was also called Veda. Right. Because her character's okay. name was Veda Sultifus. Right. Um, and then they settled on My Girl, which was a better title than Born Jaundiced because Born Jaundiced was just a terrible title. But <laughs> it, I no, still think that the be. body was uh, a better title. Mm, but better. they, you know. Well, they could have called I My think- Girl the bodies because there's there's tons of bodies in My Girl. That's absolutely true. I didn't yeah. think of it. I don't even think. Look at that. Um, I'm trying to remember when My Girl was made, when Stand By Me was made. Anyway, but. My Girl was 91. And when was Stand By Me? Uh, 80s, yeah, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. There you go. Well, there L- you go. A little bit of time. Yeah. A little bit of time. A little bit of time. Anyway, it's a it's right. a terrific movie and a shitty title. So there are you, you are you are you friendly with Rob Reiner? It seems like I am. Yeah, it seems like you would be. He is. In uh, fact, Rob Reiner was the best man at my uh, wedding to my husband, and we got married in Rob Reiner's empty house. Oh my God. Why was it empty? It was empty because there had been a fire in his house. <laughs> they had had to do, you know, repairs. And so they had emptied the house and sort of, you know, spent some months fixing it. And it was right, before right. he had moved back in. And so when we were getting married and we were looking for a place to get married uh, on a Tuesday afternoon in, in December, he offered his house, which was empty. And so we got married in his living room, uh, and then he moved in. I guess like a week later or two weeks later. He, uh, Rob Reiner is one of our one of our favorite people on this show. Um, not only did he pull off two of the best Stephen King adaptations, but also just what an incredible run that guy had. You know, mm-hmm. uh, one of He's the best. He's a talented, talented guy. He's smart. He's sweet, and he's a really good filmmaker. And those right. those pieces of work, any of those stories, need a craftsman to build the movie because yeah. they are to go from the page to the screen uh, takes a real filmmaker. Yeah, no, I, get- we, we've mentioned it a couple of times on on the show in past episodes, but it's like. It's pretty incredible when you look at Rob Reiner, what he did, because it's not that he just made good movies. He made the gold standard of every genre that he he did. Like there is no, you know, better 80s fantasy romance than Princess Bride or, uh, you know, a thriller than than like Misery or rom-com like when Harry Met Sally, you know, or Stand By Me. That's the like. It's the movie that every coming of age movie is trying to be, you know, and yeah. he just like, no, yeah. he, he just kind of pumped him out. Um, I think you're right. And it was sort of his time to be able to be that adapter of those pieces of work. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure like anybody's career, careers, you know, have their zenith, have their time. Um, I am a perfect example of the exception to that rule simply because I'm still I'm more creative now in my 60s mm. than I was in the 
totality of the earlier part of my life. So I'm a big exception to a rule, just in the sense that I'm still able to do this creative work um, at the level I'm doing it. But you're right, Rob has has he's a baseball fan, so you know he he hit many a homer uh, in those <laughs> definite in those genres. You're right. And to your original question, I'm imagining that the decision to change the name from the body to stand by me was probably to just make it clear to people that even though Stephen King's name was going to be on this thing, that it wasn't a horror story, you know, that it was something a little bit more sentimental. So in that sense, I I understand it. And, (laughs) and the song evokes that, Mm -hmm. you know, totally. I mean, totally. The song basically tells that story for you. And that coupled with, the nostalgia that those boys mm-hmm. walking down those railroad tracks yielded. I mean, it's really, we're talking about innocence. Totally. Um, uh, yeah. It's very similar in a way to Halloween, which is the innocence of Laurie Strode and her friends walking down the street, talking about boys. And then the inclusion of Michael Myers, it's very similar right. to the inclusion of what happens when, they stumble across this uh, body. Right. Ace Merrill, I guess, maybe the Kiefer Sutherland role, maybe he's the Michael Myers. He's walking around with a knife, threatening him to, yeah. to stab him up for, yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad that you brought up Halloween because I think the publicist will murder us if we just keep only talking about Stand By Me. Uh, and I know you've been talking about Halloween all day long, so we, you know, no, no, I, I don't want to. By the way, I've been talking about Halloween for 43 years. <laughs> are you, um, um, I'm probably you... talking about Halloween older than you are, am I right? Uh, by, by three years. By three yes. Years. Okay. I've been talking about Laurie Strode and Michael Myers longer than you've been alive. <laughs> That's, That's true. crazy. Do you ever get tired of talking about Halloween or Michael Myers? No, I don't. I stopped talking about them for a while because I was no longer making films about Mm, them. Sure. And was making films about other things. And, you know, you you talk about the work you're doing uh, at the time you're doing it. I mean, I'll always get asked questions about Halloween, but of course I've had great good fortune of being able to, you know, make some comedies that are, are well thought of and are funny and still hold up, uh, made, you know, I've kind of circled the wagons of different types of work. And so Halloween just sort of dropped off of my um, main point of conversation Mm -hmm. when you know, out of the blue, the phone rang. I was on vacation in Idaho and Jake Gyllenhaal called me and said, hey, Uh, I said, hey. And he said, my friend David Gordon Green wants to talk to you about a Halloween movie. Can I give him your number? And I'm, I'm telling you, in June of 2017, the last thing I thought I would be doing or talking about is another Halloween movie. Yeah, right. I literally thought that was the last thing I thought would come my way. And uh, I was surprised. And like I say to most people, okay, (laughs) like, okay. And I spoke to David. He tried to explain what he was trying to do. I said, you know what? Don't explain it. Just send it to me. And, you know, right away I read it, called him the next day, said, okay. Because I completely knew what he was trying to do. Uh, It was evident on the page. and it was as easy as that. 
Right. Was it pitched to you at the, you know, the top of this process as, you know, the first part in a trilogy? Like, that, no. was that the understanding from the, no? No, no. That came up, I'm trying to remember where, I remember where we were sitting. We were at the Sony lot where that big rainbow bridge mm -hmm. is. And we were sitting outside on that wall when he told me about the trilogy. So I think it must have been after we filmed the 2018 movie mm -hmm. um, and either they were screening it there or we were mixing it there or doing some sort of looping. It was probably an ADR session, if, if anything, now mm -hmm. that I think of it. And we took a break and we went outside and, and then he explained to me what the next chapter was going to be. And then the chapter after it. And, you know, this was, the 2018 movie was ahead of the curve of the 2018 women's movement. We released in October, and I believe um, the first allegations by Ronan Farrow were published in September. So, you know, this was right at the top of the, the or no, right at the beginning of that ascent of female ownership of trauma and torture right. mm -hmm. over, over a long time. And so we just rode that wave at the same time. We had made a movie a year before. He had written the movie a year and a half before, but somehow he was prescient to understand that this was coming. Hmm. And it just, we literally went with that. And the same thing happened with the 2021 movie, which is they wrote that in 20. 18, late 2018, 2019. And, you know, the world sort of started to explode when groups of people started to say, to quote network, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. That right. this idea of, of, of a group of people, the collective rage, the collateral damage of a ton of hurt people we're now rising up saying the system is broken. We are taking matters into our own hands. Well, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so did the world. We've seen yeah. it all around the world. So yeah. it's interesting to me that David Gordon Green, particularly David, has this sort of prescience about what's going on in society. Right. I'm going to need a heads up on whatever the third movie is about to prepare for whatever's coming I'm up sure in the next would. couple of years. Do I need uh, to fortify my house? Like need a, um, a battle mobile? I, I don't get to tell you nothing about nothing. <laughs> okay, good. Um, um, let's talk Stephen King. Um, by the way, um, I sure. can probably tell you I've never read Stephen King. Oh, and I can totally guarantee you the only movies of Stephen King's I've seen uh, the only movie of Stephen King's I've seen is Stand By Me. I have seen scenes from Misery. There's a moment where she takes a, a mallet, I believe, and breaks <laughs> ankles. Yeah, um, James Conn. I think That's true. Uh, I've seen scenes from Misery. I've never obviously seen the entire movie because I scare easily. What so about I'm the Shawshank be Redemption? a boring interview for you because... Not uh, at all. I have nothing to offer about Stephen King, but you can go for it. <laughs> for sure. this is a, you haven't this seen is the Shawshank it. Redemption? Oh, that's right. I forgot. That, that's I've Stephen seen King, Shawshank. The Green Mile? Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. You're right. I have. Sorry. He's got See, a few I of lied. them in there. I said I never lie, and here I lie. <laughs> I I really, honestly, I mean, I it's terrible to say. Uh, you know, yes, I saw those movies. Yes, they were lovely. Right. Yes, there were parts of them that were Frank Darabont. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So there, there are parts of it. There's filmmaking parts of it that are beautiful. Right. But um, I don't actually, they, they did not register in my world. This still brings an interesting perspective of the show that we don't often get. But a question we ask all of our guests on the show is, what is your Stephen King origin story? Which is to say, when did King first pop up on your radar as this like sort of pop culture presence? Uh, I'm curious if you, what your answer is to that question. Like, when did you first become aware of him out in the, out in the ether as this, this guy that was doing what, he's, what he does? When I read the body, I read the oh, really? body. Yeah. Yeah. I knew Rob. I mean, Robbie, as I said, Rob is one of my husband's best friends. He was the best man at my wedding. I got married at his house. So we spent a lot of time with Rob and Andy Scheinman, his partner, and mm-hmm. you know, the whole team at Castle Rock. My husband ended up making movies for Castle Rock. And so we were with him, around him, a lot during the creation, production, shooting, editing, release of The Body or mm-hmm. Stand By Me. And although we didn't visit the set, you know, obviously we knew uh, a lot about it because we knew Robbie. Right. Yeah, right on. So well, that's that's really um, cool. Actually, I mean, I read the body because Rob was doing a movie of it. I'm curious how someone who who gets spooked very easily manages <sighs> to work on Halloween sets. Like, are you so used to the sight of Michael Myers that if you round a corner on a set and he's standing right there, it doesn't just make you scream? Well, here's what I will tell you. I told you I scare easily. Right. Um, the last thing in the world I want to do is be frightened. Right. Um, and I mean last thing in the world I want is to be frightened. Life is scary and I don't need added stress and sorus. <laughs> um, I will tell you that when I was 15 years old, my parents, Janet and my stepfather, Bob Brandt, bought a house that had a movie screen in the ceiling and you could roll in these projectors and screen movies in this fancy house, which we lived in a very short time, very unusual from the childhood I grew up with, which was on a dirt road, um, you know, literally in the country. I grew up on a, uh, in a house on a dirt road with a donkey in a stable and you know, a lot of land and I was a little tomboy and we just ran around and built forts and, you know, whatever. And so at one point, my parents bought this fancy house and moved there for about three years. Mm-hmm. And there was the capability of screening a movie. So on my 15th birthday, my parents threw me a birthday party and screened The Exorcist. Now, what you need oh, to Jesus. know is that okay. <laughs> The Exorcist, my parents were very good friends with Ray Stark. Ray Stark, who produced The Exorcist, said to my mother, because I was a precocious 12-year-old, I mean, if you guys know me at all, I'm 62 and I'm precocious. <laughs> so you can only imagine what I was like at 12. I was a flirt. You know, I was pretty funny as a 12-year-old. 
And Ray Stark called my mother and asked her if I could audition to play Reagan. And my mother resoundingly said, no fucking way. <laughs> like, no, Ray, no, my little Jamie is not going to be coming in and playing the part of Reagan. Funny enough, weirdly enough, just as a little aside, one of my best girlfriends is Melanie Griffith. And we have reconnected in the last five years, six years, uh, in a very deep way. And she apparently got a call from, like, Tippy Hedren got a call also wondering if Melanie could audition for Reagan. So we, she and I were joking about it. The reason I bring it up yes. is my parents screened this movie. Needless to say, I would say to my parents, what the were you thinking screening The Exorcist? Um, needless to say, it scared me, um, mm. kind of scared me in a bad way. And my friends knew it. I think I cried. I think there was crying. I was pretty upset. And my friends knew it. And so at school the next day, my friends ran up behind me in the hall and said, Demi, Demi, why you do this to me? Demi, why you do this to me? And, you know, needless to say, it freaked me out a little bit. And when I got my first car, uh, when I was 16 years old in California, it was a 1972 uh, Mercury Capri. It was sky hmm. blue, four cylinder. And the personalized license plate on the back of my car was Demi. <laughs> because that's how freaked out I was. And how freaked out I am by scary things. Right. So it's no surprise that I would never have read Stephen King. It's no surprise that I would not have watched a lot of Stephen King movies. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just who I am. So I, that gives you a tiny background as to the world that I live in and still live in to this day. Well, I'm going back to Stand By Me. I'm really curious your perspective as an actor and especially somebody who uh, has worked a lot with uh, uh, with kids in movies and he has been around a lot of child actors and was a very young actor yourself when you started. Um, because one of the things that that's really incredible about Rob's movie is how he cast each one of the four leads and how they're just like the perfect people for those roles. And each one of them, or at least uh, uh, River Phoenix and Will Wheaton, they both get these amazing moments of vulnerability that you don't usually see that would be hard for, you know, uh, a 20 year vet to, to, uh, to approach. Like, what do you think of, of, uh, of how the, the kids act in those, in the movie? Yeah. I, I was going to, it's funny. If you had said to me, like talking about stand by me, like what's your memory of it or what's your thought mm. about it? It would yeah. be exactly what you just brought up, which is the, the truth of those young people, the right. reality of both in the writing, because the writing really leads them there, the performance, you know what I mean? It leads the performances, that whole mm. conversation about Mickey and Goofy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What the no, hell is no, Goofy? Ronald, yeah. like, yeah. is he a duck, but is Goofy a dog? Like the whole, like, I don't even know the run, but I right. do know that that, felt so important to them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? The way 
Totally. There was something so beautiful and real in that interchange, in that young adolescent boys Mm -hmm. uh, on the early side of puberty, um, just trying to explore, as you said, vulnerability. It's that it's the beauty of the film is that those two moments particularly exist. Um, How Rob got there or did it with the actors is, you know, not something I could speak of because I don't, I don't have that story or I don't know that story, but I agree with you that the strength of stand by me are these young actors creating a world that is so real that when you start to introduce this sort of darker, more curious vein of the storytelling that you you feel so much. And not to keep going back to Halloween, because by the way, I'm not paid to say Halloween <laughs> over and over again. They do not, I do not get a check every time I say the word Halloween. I'm just letting you know that for sure. No, Carpenter um, probably does, but yeah. Uh, I'm sure, and by the way, God bless him. I hope every time that ringtone goes off on somebody's phone, I hope his <laughs> bank account just gets fatter and fatter. God bless him. Uh, no. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I derailed you. No, I know. I'm trying to remember what I was saying. Saying the kids, the kids and the truth. And then the, oh, the simply that the verisimilitude of that time and place, hmm. the language, the clothing, the references, the art direction, the you know the score all of mm-hmm. that creates mm-hmm. such a nostalgic time of innocence and wonder really the wonder years right i mean it's like mm-hmm. wonder it's yeah. not dissimilar to what john created with lori strode and her friends and that same quotidian day in day out tease Lori, you know, talk about boys. There's this same droning on of what seems to be innocuous, unimportant, but really important to the people talking about it stuff. Right. So that when you introduce something else, a different vein of storytelling, you by nature feel for those young people. Be yeah, it they're, Lori they're real Stroh, people. The, they are real because they are speaking a language and references that are real that we all can identify with. Every single one of us has known a Lori Strode in the same way that every one of us has known one of those little boys. We've known them. And the minute that happens, then we by nature want to protect them when the shit starts to hit the fan. And it's just the nature. It's why Halloween works so well. You spend so much time establishing these routinized lives of these people, these boys talking about these things in the clubhouse and all of that beautiful time so that when the darker element comes in, you by nature have cared for these young people and therefore you feel 
um, compassion and protection. Right. There's an honesty there. And I think that that's kind of what you're hitting on. Um, and th- funnily enough, the thing that I think about when you bring that up in the original Halloween is the fact that is the scene when, uh, uh, you're smoking weed in the car and then you pull up and, and sheriff brackets outside the window. Right. And, and it's not just the fact that like, Oh, you know, the, the goody two shoes girl, of course, you know, she smokes pot like everybody did. Right. Um, uh, it's, it's the reaction that you have afterwards where you're just like, Oh, he smelled it. I know he smelled it. He, he yeah. had to have smelled, you know, it's like yeah. that to me, like is the thing that that little bit at, at the, the tail end, the button of that scene is what makes Lori real for me. Because I see her as I, that's how I would be like, oh shit, like he, that he saw, he saw me. He's going to, he knows, he knows, he knows, you know? Well, and two things just in that same vein. And I agree with you, Lori walking down the street singing, I wish I had you all alone. And the scene you just brought up, what's wacky is in the 2018 movie, David Gordon Green and John Carpenter and 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 his son Cody, they took "I Wish You Had a, I Wish I Had You All Alone" and actually turned it into a song that's playing on the radio when the little boy is sitting in the truck with his father, saying that he wants to be a dancer, not a hunter. Huh. When the, Never the, that. In the right before the bus, if you listen right. to it again, they have remixed it. And that is a song playing on the radio when <laughs> the truck pulls up to the, what we find out is the um, now, uh, you know, uh, bus that has crashed and all of the um, mental patients from the institution along with Michael are roaming. Right. And that beautiful little bon mot uh, for audiences who are paying attention And then the other thing that what you just brought up is in the 2021 movie, Charles Cyphers, who Mm -hmm. plays Sheriff Brackett, is in the 2021 movie. Right. That continuity of art and character and thought is really beautiful if you think about it. Just the just that you brought up that scene which I remember shooting and there's Charles Cyphers in a movie 42 years later, he shot that scene. That's amazing. That's the beauty of all of this. So yes, all of that real time, real place. That's what people are going for. I bought my clothes in Halloween there. I think they had like $200 to spend on Lori's wardrobe. And we went to J.C. Penney and we bought Lori clothes like she was going back to school shopping with her mom. You buy the yeah. top that goes with the pants, that goes with the skirt, that goes with the sweater. So you can mix and match. I mean, it's just that's the kind of reality that I'm looking for as an actor. That's what I long for. And it's what it's what stand by me. I think it's what makes it so spectacular is those young performances and that real world world that has been created. Yeah. We've talked about stand by me several times on the show and I, I of course and, you have. Yeah, oh yeah. We got to <laughs> keep know, this. What movie would you have thought I was going to bring up? Oh no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I'm glad That's, you did. 
Yeah, that's not where I was going with this. But okay. um, the people that we have talked to, guests that we've had on the show talking about it, have all been parents. And something that always comes up when we're talking Stand By Me is the freedom that these kids had at this time versus the freedom that parents might uh, be affording kids these days. You know, would it be possible for a kid to go off and find a body in the woods on like a, a two day hike, you know, without parental supervision? And I'm I'm curious how freewheeling your upbringing was. It, it sounds like it, it was, you know, you had the run of the place. You had a donkey. Yeah. Yeah. It you wasn't were living even in- our donkey. It was our neighbor, the Cavallari's. Okay, one thing I need to know is what was the donkey's name? That's been driving Jenny. me crazy. Jenny. Okay, Jenny. cool. Lovely. Um, yes, Lovely the Cavalry brothers um, lived down the street on this dirt road, and mm-hmm. they had a, a, a Jenny the donkey in a stable right across the street from our house. Um, I was free range to a d- great degree. Um, yeah. We had a lot of land. And it was undeveloped and we had tarantulas and rattlesnakes. And, you know, we got, we, I was raised in that time of like, you just, you had to be outside. You couldn't be in your room. And, you know, hours, my parents would never know Mm -hmm. where we were. Hours and hours. I also grew up going to Idaho uh, in the winters and uh, the resort of Sun Valley, Idaho was created as a way to create a safe place where families could come. It was sort of contained. There's like a little mall within the community. And from the age of seven, we would go skiing on our own. You know, you would take the bus to the ski hill. You would take your lesson. You'd get back on the bus and go back to the lodge. You'd go up to your room by yourself. You'd change into your after ski clothes and then you and your friends would go marauding around this. <laughs> there was a bowling alley. There was a, a, and we all, the only rule was we had to be back in our uh, rooms, I think by seven and in bed by seven thirty. And I'm telling you, I've raised two children to adulthood. And I remember when we moved to where we live now and we live near a public park. And I remember my daughter uh, Annie saying she wanted to walk up to the park. And it was like, no effing way, lady. (laughs) And yet I was raised with a kind of free range mentality. It's, It's just a different time. And you're right. It is the story of that time, that innocence, that in it, I mean, even American graffiti is such a mm. great example of sort right. of those boys grown up. Yeah. But it's, oh, totally. It's, but, you know, no cell phones, no checking in. I mean, oh my God, the amount of trouble I got into in my teens, you know, I won't even name what we did, but <laughs> that's was part of what forged us into the people we are. And right. That this generation of helicopter parenting and, you know, never letting them out of your sight and tracking their every movement and the phone apps and, you know, the car apps where you have no freedom. There's something so crazy because all of these kids are exploding in college. Mm -hmm. These kids that have been helicoptered their entire lives are exploding in their freshman year of college because there's nobody telling them to do anything. 
Right. So right. It's you're you're absolutely right that this innocence, this time of innocence and you know, kind of bravery of having to deal with situations that you got into, all of those life experiences are crucial. And we are denying them of our children because of the times we live in. Yeah, it's it's all interesting because like just statistically on a crime level, we are safer than we've ever been as a nation. I mean, obviously our schools are not, uh, you know, with the constant mass shootings, but just in terms of like kids going down to the corner store or whatever, because that's even, you know, I was an 80s kid and even back then it was cool. It's summer. You know, you say hi to your mom when you're <laughs> when you wake up and then you're just out, you know, exploring. I was dumpster diving and exploring right. all through my apartment complexes. And, you know, I was doing the more low key version of what they did in this movie. You know, they went to a junkyard and I just dumpster dived in the, the apartment right. complex stuff looking for treasure, you know, probably but getting cut just, by cat food lids and stuff. Yeah. You didn't have to check in. Yeah. It was this that there was freedom and it's just an imp- because we are in a society where everywhere we go, we're on cameras and, yeah. and yet I feel less safe than I did back <laughs> in the day. And I'm, it's a weird, it's a weird phenomenon, isn't it? Right. That we have more checks and balances now, more ways of actually keeping track. I mean, my parents wouldn't have known where the F we were. Not a clue if they had, I mean, I guess they would have sort of started screaming, you know, like, where are you? You know what I mean? But I did not have to report my every move Mm. and modern people, you have to report your every move (laughs) that we have been turned into fearful people. And I think Jermaine, to your point, that it feels like we are safer. Although, I mean, in, you can't say that to the people in Chicago. You can't say, you know what I mean? Right. There, are, right. there are neighborhoods. I mean, right now, Brooklyn and New York City, mm-hmm. very challenging. But my, by the way, my husband, Christopher, mm-hmm. my husband lived in the village and went to music and art, which was in Harlem. And he mm-hmm. took the bus when he was eight. Yeah. Good Lord. That's I mean, hard he to imagine. Got himself or not, you know what I mean? He was 10 years old. He was on the bus to music and art. Again, his parents weren't like calling school. Did he get there? I remember when I was like 14 or so and my parents got me a beeper. Like, (laughs) yeah. And with the idea being that they could summon me to a phone whenever they needed to. But of course, if I was out doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing and a, a, you know, a beep, what did we call those? Beeper messages. Pagers. Yeah. If like your pager went off. I would just not answer it. You know, it was it, <laughs> it, it was totally ineffective as a as a parenting tool. You know, it's just right. this you know expensive device that I ultimately put through the washer. I think. Right. <laughs> yeah, didn't really help anything. I'm, yeah. No, I, I mean it helps drug dealers. Helps <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that explains so much of, for for Scott here. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't dealing at fourteen years old. Huh? Okay. Well, did not have good for you. And by the way, please. good parenting. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> just, I'm just terrible I, I remember, at math. Uh, yeah, that's it. I remember I always, every time I'd go out and I still to this day do it, even though we don't need it, it's a habit that I got into when I was young, was to carry quarters in my pocket so I could use the payphone to call my mom to pick me up from places. So it's like that. that's how, you know, pre-cell phones and, and all that, that, that was just the 
the thing. And and to this day, I still carry like a dollar and quarters in me in all time, even though, you know, when am I going to need that? You know, except maybe a meter or something, you know? Right. So I, I, to that point, I remember my entire childhood, you know, as I said, we would go to the ski place and mm-hmm. I remember that the way they used to let parents know that a kid had broken their leg was they had chalkboards at the lift, <laughs> at the ski lifts, uh-huh. and they would write, Mr. and Mrs. Brandt, please call ski patrol <laughs> regarding your child. I swear <laughs> to you, because if you think about it, if you think about uh-huh. it, if you're skiing in a ski school with your friends, Mm-hmm. This is in the seventies, in the eight, you know, or in the seventies, in the sixties. To be honest, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm born in fifty eight. I was skiing by by myself at the age of, of you know, in nineteen sixty eight. So you can imagine. Let's say, God forbid, I was skiing with my group and I fell and broke my leg, and it was ten o'clock in the morning. How would they find my parents? My parents were skiing on the mountain. With their friends, how would they find them? They would write on a chalkboard, Mr. and Mrs. Brandt, your daughter Jamie is injured. Please call ski patrol. That was how they did it. So you're right. It is, it goes back to the the power of Stephen King nostalgia-wise, being able to write to that easier time. I mean, obviously, I am not a King scholar. On any level, I'm not even in freshman Stephen. I might might qualify for like the first month of freshman Stephen King University. Like Mm. I might just have gotten through the first month (laughs) of school. But what I can tell you, if I had written you a paper, I think I would have understood that his skill of nostalgia, of connecting your memories to those times past mm-hmm. and what they evoke in you as a reader or as a, in the regards to a film, the watcher, that he tapped into something powerful in his ability to recreate nostalgic moments in all of our lives absolutely and there's elementary there's a, there's a, an a yeah. on that fucking paper <laughs> you would have you would have for sure well, then i there, would have failed the rest of the class right there, <laughs> there's a universal element to something that he does with the characters that was adapted supremely by the the writers and and uh, rob reiner um but it, it's that every single one of the four kids had an adult that has failed them in their life. And there's a moment where every kid has that. It's kind of, it's the realizing your, your parents aren't perfect moment, right? The, that they're not, you know, gods that have all the answers. And that's something that no matter what area you're brought up in, that's something you can recognize. There's always going mm-hmm. to be a moment where for uh, river Phoenix's character, Chris, you know, he has an abusive father and all that stuff, but it wasn't that it was the school, the lady at school that stole the the lunch money and blamed it on him, right. you know, for, right. for Will Wheaton characters, you know, Gordy's it's, you know, it's his parents that are ignoring him after the death of his brother. And, you know, and uh, for Teddy, you know, his dad burned his ear on the stove. Like every single one of them has, 
has somebody in their adult life that has failed them somewhere. And that speaks to kids. I was probably around the age of those kids when I read The Body for the first time. And I was younger than those kids when I saw the movie for the first time. And I related to it, even if I couldn't tell you why. Well, isn't that ultimately, I mean, with all of the surrealists and all of the people who work in fantasy and worlds of magical thinking and magical realism and all of it, all I want is to relate. That's all I want to do as a human being, honestly, is relate. If you relate to me, And I relate to you because we're honest about who we are and what we're trying to do and what we're afraid of and what we're turned on by or whatever it is. That to me is the goal. The relating is the whole fucking thing to me. Right. The rest of the whole fantasy part I could care less about. I am not interested in reading science fiction. And, you know, I know there are a lot of people who love Tolkien and like, I couldn't get into it because I couldn't find what I related to. Hmm. Obviously you see the movies, you go, okay, I can relate to some of the struggles internally, but I couldn't fucking parse out those struggles from the language and the world and the, the, Hmm. um, I I just didn't, it didn't. It's pretty dense and on the page. Yeah. Yeah. I like to relate um, it's all I want to do. It's all I try to do. Um, uh, if anything, it's to tell the truth. And in the truth telling, somebody else goes, oh, yeah, that was just like me. I mean, I'm sober 20, coming up 23 years. Congrats. In February. I'll be sober. Thank you. Um, and for me, the whole reasons sobriety works and recovery works is because there are other people telling their stories and you wait and wait. And then finally you hear your story and you go, Oh my God, that's me. Yeah. I thought I was the only one. I thought I was terminally unique. <laughs> that No one else could relate to what I was thinking or feeling. And then all of a sudden, when you meet someone as a kid, when we're kids and we're, we, none of us feel good in our bodies and none of us feel good in our outfits and nobody feels because we're changing and we're, you know, adolescence is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And when you meet someone else who you relate to, And that relief that comes, that floods over you when you meet your people, that's what those boys are. They've met their people and they feel safe in that. And that's something all I've looked for my whole life. I am married to my first husband. I'm still married to my first husband. You know, we have like all I have ever wanted is connection and loyalty all I've ever wanted in everything. Um, My publicist, Heidi Schaefer, Mm -hmm. was a young publicist at PMK when I was sent on a world tour for Trading Places and they Mm -hmm. gave me two tickets and all of my friends were in college because I didn't go to college. I was working as an actor and I asked Heidi if she wanted to go. We barely knew each other, 
but she was this young woman from LA who'd never been out of the country. And, Hmm. you know, she and I have been friends since then. That was 1981. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Like, I want to find my people. (laughs) (laughs) I want my people. Yeah, that never goes away. Never goes away. And those book, those writings and those stories and that story in particular was so much about being, I mean, look at the, just, I mean, look, let's not get maudlin here, but maybe as we finish the interview, you'll play stand by me and you just listen to the words, <laughs> right. just listen to the lyrics. And it sort of is talking about what we're talking about. Yeah. One more Which, question about Stand By Me that I have for you. And this is another thing that we've we've asked uh, previous guests who've talked about this title is, okay, you know the big set piece where they're running across the bridge from the train? Yep. Put in that position, do you think you would jump off the bridge or make a run for it? Make a run. Really? You think you could make yep. it? Yep. I don't think I could make it. I think I'd yep. jump. <laughs> I think I would no. get scared. And so, are you? Are, are you? Do you have a problem with heights? I do not. It, you just, you just got the self confidence. You're gonna. Did you ever you're see gonna... True Lies? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Three days before my 35th birthday, I got wired to the underside of a helicopter, which took off from a base camp and then flew for 20 minutes, wired to the helicopter, to the location on the bridge where the limo has gone off the edge and Jim Cameron is actually is in the passenger seat of the helicopter. He is physically shooting the shot. He's leaning out of the helicopter, shooting down at me. There's a stunt man wired to the grid, you know, the skid and he's facing down at me and I'm looking up, holding his hand, you know, on a wire you know, I was up there for an hour and 20 minutes and, you know, we, we were up there. So I have no problems with heights. <laughs> Good answer. Well, perfect. And and just listening yeah. to that, um, I, I, and I'm not saying this in a kiss assy way because I'm, I'm oh, go on. very much not Quiet. that side. Do you, do you understand how fucking cool you are? Like, do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> like do you like do you ever yeah. think about the movies you've made all like true lies fish called wanda any any movie we can name like you have done the coolest shit with the coolest people i have just i'm telling you it's like i know that's cool and i agree with you mm-hmm. i'm i just it's just not what i live for i'm happy to have had those experiences they sure. all were met with a lot of personal strife mm-hmm. because I'm a mother and a wife. And, you know, I started, you know, making a, a, a fish called Wanda. I shot when my daughter was six months old. And I got to tell you, my memory of that is crying on the way to work and on the way back from work because I just felt hmm. shitty. I felt, yeah. I felt like this was the circumstance of my life. She was safe. There was a, you know, a, a woman who I'd never met before I got to London, who was the nanny who was watching over her and my husband was there. And yet, right. no matter what, I felt bad. Like, I've, like, like, for my memory of even true lies, there are lots of separations from my family that I'm not going to say I regret, but really took a toll. 
So it's funny. I don't look at those pieces of work now all these years later like, oh, yeah, that was cool. I mean, they're cool. I mean, Freaky Friday is cool. But again, I I am, again, if I can't relate Hmm. to the truth of the experience, I'm then not being who I am, which is that the truth is that it all of those experiences that you talked about, which were cool and are cool, <laughs> took a toll on me because I was trying to reconcile at all of those times, how do you do this? How do you be a mom? How do you be a wife? How do you have a career? How do you have to go away from home? How do you do it? And by the way, right. a lot of it was pre-internet, mm-hmm. pre, you know what I mean? It, it, it FaceTime and yeah. Oh, it, but FaceTime. My yeah. God. <laughs> I mean, Pre-Zoom, pre-any. Yeah. It, it, uh, the biggest thing I had, I would fax my daughter every day. You know, but that's <laughs> right. what I'm saying is like that stuff was hard for me. And right. so I feel a little bruised by all of it. It's cool that I was able to do those pieces of work. I am grateful beyond measure to the people that offered me those parts. You know, Jim Cameron wrote the part of Helen for me, wrote it for me. So I'm grateful for all of that. But funny enough, my my connection back to it is that it was hard on me because I I felt that pull that many, many women do. And And by the way, and men, but less so men, because they're they're not the caretakers, and I am. Right. Good answer. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. No. Definitely. I uh, I think we're running out of time here, but uh, just to illustrate that point, I spent many months uh, down in New Zealand on the set of the Hobbit movie, and I got to know Martin Freeman a little bit. And Martin Freeman, right. that's exactly what he was saying. Like, because I would try to talk to him about, like, oh, the like this, the big family down here and it was amazing crew, amazing cast, you know, amazing location down in New Zealand. And he was just like, no, nah, I know where my family is. They're, they're over in, in uh, England and I'm, I'm here. You know, so he's like, you know, he, he had a very similar them. thing. Yeah. yeah and exactly. I'm not with them. And no matter how much I tell people I miss them and I love them and I miss them and I love them. It's you're not there. And yeah, I, I've been, by the way, just, just to like, make sure that your listeners all understand. It's the reason that I sold yogurt that makes you shit for seven years. Part of the reason that I've done commercials. I did Hertz rent-a-car commercials where Mm. I ran through airports with OJ Simpson and Arnold Palmer, where I was the young business executive running through airports the way that OJ used to run through airports. Now he runs through prisons. But you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> right. I, I, I ran through airports and jumped over suitcases like he did. And Arnold Palmer would elbow him and go, didn't you used to be able to do that? And then OJ would go, mm-hmm. And that was sort mm-hmm. of the button on the scene. But I've been selling, I've been doing commercials for a very, very, very long time. Partially so that I could ameliorate all of that distance from mm-hmm. my family because it allowed right. me to earn money and stay home. Yeah. And so for people who were like, why are you doing yogurt commercials? I'm like, because I had two kids and I needed to stay home. 
And so I make no excuses about it, but it just gives you an idea. Why does somebody do that? They do that for money. Why do they need the money? Because it's what we all need to live and work in our lives. Um, and for me, it was an easier way to make money. And it allowed me to stay home and try to be a better mom, which was my primary purpose. Again, relating to the reality of life rather than this fantasy world. Like exactly the Martin Freeman example is perfect. You must be over the moon to be here with this amazing group of people on this mm -hmm. amazing project that's already grown such a fantastic amount of, of success. And now you're a part of it. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. I wish I was home. And yep. that's how I felt always. Well, I get you. I see you, Jamie. Um, I know. And, I, and by the way, I appreciate that and your kind words. I really do appreciate it. That's to me what's crucial here is yeah. that that we relate to each other. Um, it's why Stand By Me was so relatable for you as a mm -hmm. young man. For me, as a, a remembering that period of time, looking back, you know, at that point. Um, I was in my twenties and, th you know, so I, it was a look back, but it still had a nostalgia to me. And I think that's what he's really good at. And I'm glad you guys spend all this time talking about him because he's cool and you're cool. Yeah. And um, <laughs> thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. This is, uh, um, this has been an honor. I've enjoyed it. And um I was terrified because I know so very little about Stephen King. So oh, no, we I, can. Thanks for having me and uh, be safe and uh, wear masks and stuff. Absolutely. Okay. God bless. Take care. Many, 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 many thanks to the legend, the icon, the living badass that is Jamie Lee Curtis for coming on this very show. I still can't believe she agreed to do this. I, yeah, think, I don't great. think she could believe she agreed to do this. There are certain points <laughs> in there where she, she was just like, I don't fucking even know Stephen King shit, but I'm here to talk to you guys. Yeah. So. What am I doing here? You're doing the King cast, ma'am. And we're excited to have you. Uh, yeah, that was quite a ride. And while we're here, I'd like to say a special thanks to a gentleman by the name of Sam Haft, uh, he helped us in pulling off this episode, and uh, I just want to make sure he gets credited for uh, greasing the right reels for us. Yeah, Thank you, for Sam. Sure. And, and many thanks to Damien at Universal, too, for for uh, yes. being in our corner uh, this whole this whole thing. And he's part of the reason why uh, we're getting a whole series of Halloween Kills guests on the show. You may notice that uh, we're starting off strong, uh, but we have a few more episodes with guests that you know, they're pretty damn good. I don't know. It's, it's hard to beat Jamie Lee. I mean, if you're talking Halloween... You know, it's hard to beat Jamie Lee, uh, the only person that would be better or on equal footing, not even better. Equal footing with Jamie Lee is John Carpenter. And I'm telling you right now, we did not get John Carpenter. We uh, did not. Yeah, but I know that that's been going around. We've we've talked to Carpenter before. We've made the ask before. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but he uh, he likes playing music and, you know, playing video games and smoking weed. That's all that that dude wants to do now. Yeah, he doesn't want to do some weird Stephen King podcast. That's what I like to do. So basically, I have a lot in common with John Carpenter <laughs> and I feel like we would have much to discuss. Hopefully we will get him on the show at some point. But no, he is not a part of this lineup. Uh, next Wednesday, though. Whoo, buddy. Uh, we're getting somebody on the show. This is, once again, somebody I did not expect to agree to the show. A personal hero of mine. Very exciting name uh, who all of you surely know. 
The only catch here is we do not currently know which title they are picking. We're still waiting on that news because we're not going to be recording this one for uh, another few days. So I can't tease a title for you. I can just tease that it's uh, a guest that I'm super excited to talk about We or talk to. Both of us are. You're going to be excited to hear us talk to them. But that, that's really all I can say about it right now. Yeah. So we don't know what the title is. It will hopefully not be Stand By Me. <laughs> Since we just just did that, uh, right. but if this person wants to talk about Stand by Me, we're talking. This this is a guess that it doesn't matter, and you'll you guys when you know who it is, you'll be like, you don't you can talk about Dean Koontz if you want, you know, as long as he's on the show. So you know, we're kind of yes. we're kind of in that in that uh, zone with this this particular person. So, um, but what we can tell you about that we know for sure uh, is our Patreon bonus episode, and we are doing our commentary for this month we're kind of in a stand by me mood so we figured why not do a commentary for stand by me and in order to do that we brought in a longtime friend of mine one of the nicest dudes in the world let alone hollywood uh he is a writer and a producer and a showrunner his name is kevin beagle he created the show enlisted which was uh great and fortunately it only lasted for one season and we talk about that as we're watching stand by me together but he was also going to run the new mutant show for Marvel that never made it out of pilot. I'm, I'm making it sound like he's never done anything. Yeah, he did Cougar Town. Cougar Town. <laughs> yeah, he did Cougar deal. Town. He originated Cougar Town, and that went on for like I think what seventy eight seasons. I think total. Like I, I think, think so, four thousand yes. something episodes. At last, I checked. Um, but he was a writer on South Park and Scrubs, and you know, just a funny, super nice dude and a longtime friend of mine. And he came on to do the commentary with us. And so Jamie Lee's episode was fantastic, but you know, he, we didn't really dive deep into the world of Stand by Me in that in that episode. So if you really want kind of a deep dive, like looking at at the material and the source material a little bit more closely, that commentary is for you. And if you want to join us there, you can do that over at patreon.com slash the Kingcast. sign up. That'll be for a $10 a month tier, 10 bucks a month. You also get all the backlog of everything that we've done on Patreon since we started that thing. So we're talking what well, we must be up to 30, 40, no, it's 50 something that. bonus bonus episodes by now. So, yeah, I think it's somewhere like 60 yeah. if you're if you're counting the, the commentaries. There's right. a whole there's a whole other king cast taking place right over there on <laughs> Patreon. You just got to you know, throw a few bucks in and you'll have more listening material than you could ever possibly need. Ten dollars a month also gets you a discount on our merchandise, which is good timing because we have some incredible merch out there right now. You might have seen the great Rahul Kohli. Uh, modeling some of it on social media recently. Mm-hmm. We're starting to get pictures in from people wearing the new merch from our, our partnership with Cotet 19. And so if you're a Patreon subscriber uh, at that $10 tier, the Gunslinger tier, you get, uh, was it 15% off? 15% off in perpetuity. Yeah. So if you're thinking about picking up some merch, might as well throw us some money there and, you know, just save, uh, save that extra 15%. It'll pay for itself over time, baby. The merch, by the way, if you want to if you want to check that out, go over to katet19.net. That's K-A-T-E-T-1-9.net. And uh, right up there at the top of the page, look for a little thing that says the KingCast official merch. And you're going to be taking away to a wondrous land where where T-shirts and tote bags frolic. Uh, we got a bunch of cool stuff over there. They've also got the uh, Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel t-shirts that we recently, you know, that that Eric was just talking about. That we released in celebration of Midnight Mass. And um, and also, by the way, 
Uh, yeah, listen, this idea of doing an episode about Midnight Mass, I'm into it. Eric and I haven't talked about this yet, but there's enough Stephen King influence on Midnight Mass. I feel like we could totally do a bonus episode. Just talk about the influences on that. So we are going to get to that soon, but we're also very backed up with episodes right now. So it just might be a second before it actually arrives, but don't worry. It is on route. All right. So next week, our mystery Halloween kills guest with a mystery title. That's a mystery to us as, as much as it is to you guys. And this Friday on the Patreon, our feature length commentary track of stand by me with Kevin Beagle. Indeed. See you guys then. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Yours truly.